Good morning. Uh, <clears throat> this morning, the title of my sermon is Disciples. <clears throat> I've got selected verses that I'll be using. They're printed in your handout in the New King James, together with the sermon outline for your easy reference. I'll tell you, not, not all the verses that I'll be using are printed, but those that are printed are key. And they'll be they're arranged in the order that I discuss them in the, in the sermon. So our beginning text is Matthew 28, 19 to 20, which states, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen? You know, when Jesus commands, go, make disciples, just what are we to make? What is a disciple? And so this morning, dear Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen? Amen. You know, Jesus Christ was awaiting his execution. And the reason for him coming to earth was about to be fulfilled. He was less than 18 hours from the cross when he gathered in that upper room with 12 of his followers. Let's recount. 11 of his followers and one pretender. Doesn't it seem that when Genuine value is present that there's always counterfeits. And Judas, soon-to-be betrayer, was a counterfeit. Judas is the answer to the question, how close can you come to heaven and still miss it? He had his hand on the door. Did he enter? It appears that he probably missed it. In that upper room were people with personalities, temperaments, emotions, and feelings just like us. They were soon to become more like him than us. As such, they're an encouragement to us to become like Christ. If this cast of characters could do it, so could we. Would you like to become more like the one the believers refer to as the master? Would you really like to bear the, the, the identifying marks of, of, as being a follower of Christ? Well, we know Jesus wants you to do that. He doesn't want superficial, secret disciples who charade as covert Christians. He wants hardcore, consistent followers who are identifiable by their lifestyle, not just their rhetoric, we who profess to be Christians often confuse the world. They hear some who confess to be Christian who by their actions expose the fact that they're not followers of Christ or they're not doing what Christ would have done. See, Christ wanted to avoid Satan having decoys within his little flock. He doesn't want anyone bearing his name to be insulation between the lost world and himself. He wants true 
disciples. Therefore, in that upper room, he gave three indications of what it means to be a disciple. And the Greek word disciple used here is mathetes. And some people interpret that word to simply mean a learner. But it's got to be more than that. Because a learner simply implies mental exercises. We know the deep meaning of the word is that it is thought accompanied by action. A disciple is not simply a pupil, but a practitioner. One who learns and puts into practice what is learned. They were often spoken of as imitators of their master. That is, their conduct was consistent with their teacher. Now, being unwilling to follow Christ while professing to trust him rings hollow in the ears of the world and, of course, with our Lord. No one would believe us if we claimed to believe in a doctor or a lawyer or a, an auto mechanic if we just failed to take their instructions and follow them. Now, the word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. Interestingly, the word Christian occurs only three times. Yet today, some have come to think that the word disciple describes just some Christians. Some tend to think that it is applicable only to industrial strength believers, those deluxe believers. Not so. It's intended to refer to the standard basic believer. You know, in some American churches today, being a disciple is often improperly thought of as being an option for Christians, as the optional additive that you can get to go on the standard model. And this is contrary to the Bible. The first part of Christ's commission to the church was to make disciples. They were and should be people who believe in, learn from, and pattern their life after Christ. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10.25, it is enough for a disciple that he become like his teacher. So in reality, in practice, a disciple is one who is intent on becoming Christ-like. It involves systematically and progressively rearranging your life and your lifestyle to that end. You know, a cluttered or or a congested mind looking for excuses might just make a mystery of discipleship. Some might even make it something that is dreadful. Well, listen, there is no mystery in the desire to be like someone else. If you look at society, you realize that there are those who pattern their lives after current rock musicians, movie stars, athletes, public figures. It's obvious when some young person wants to be like the Grateful Dead. It became, becomes apparent when persons want to mimic a particular hero. And so when a person wants to become and be a disciple of Christ, that is also and should be obvious. Now the cost of discipleship is often considered as a hardship. And it is. But by comparison with the cost of non-discipleship, it's far easier. Look at the lives of the non-disciples. 
Look at those who are left on the rocky shores of a spiritual shipwreck. Consider the cost to a non-disciple alcoholic. The pain of being a non-disciple addict. The horror of being a non-disciple victimized by sexually transmitted disease. The sorrow associated with being a non-disciple trapped in destructive, selfish conduct. In other words, where does a non-disciple go for a real solution? Non-discipleship costs, and it will deny you peace that abides, faith that sees life guided by Christ, hope that stands firm in the face of discouragement, and power to do what is right when everybody else is doing wrong. In that upper room, on the eve of his execution, Christ wanted to impress on his followers present and those of us to come what it means to be his disciple. And so come with me now. We're going to see that clinic that Jesus gave on discipleship. It can and it will transform your life. And Jesus shared three identifying marks of a true disciple. First, consider in your outline. Consistency. John 8.31 If you abide in my word. And shortly before Christ and his disciples went into the upper room, he had one last encounter with a group of seekers. Their big thing was freedom. That is the first on the agenda of many today. I want to be free. I want to be free. I want to be free to do this and to do that. It's a mandate that is heard by many. The freedom often sought, however, is like that which occurred on a ship. The unskilled crew became rebellious and craftily they overcame the captain and his special crew. These mutineers threw the captain and the crew overboard and then, turning to one another, asked, does anyone know how to run this ship? See, that is freedom. But it is destructive freedom. Listen, the truest form of freedom is anarchy. And that always results in slavery. You know, one of Christ's followers, James, in James 2.12, later wrote of the law of liberty. The law of liberty. That seems to be a contradictory expression. It isn't. Liberty isn't simply freedom from something. It is freedom for something. Liberty is a condition defined by boundaries and rules. Here's a classic illustration of this. You have some loving grandparents who were not able to be present when their grandchildren had their tonsils and adenoids removed. So they sent a love gift, two active goldfish. And the imaginative and creative grandchildren named them what logic would suggest tonsils, and adenoids. And sometime later, the grandparents visited the children. One saw them drive up and shouted to the other, they're coming, let's show them. Hastily, one opened the door, and the other ran behind in hot pursuit, carrying the bowl with tonsils and adenoids. And they ran, sloshing the water to and fro. 
Well, the one who was carrying the bowl tripped and fell, throwing the bowl up in the air and landing and crashing on the sidewalk, breaking into tons of pieces. And there they were, tonsils and adenoids all over that walk. Someone might think, that is wonderful. The glass bowl that restricted them is broken. Tonsils and adenoids are free, free at last. Free to die. The bowl, the very thing that restricted them was the thing that made their standard of life possible. In John 8, 31, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Freely translated, that means, if you live in the bowl of my word, it will give you the best possible quality of life. Get out of it, and you are then in an alien environment that will assure your spiritual death. And then Jesus continues in verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. He stated further in verse 36, If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And although Helmut Thielick is not one of my favorite theologians, but he made a statement that challenges me. He said, quote, The Christian stands not under the dictatorship of a legalistic you ought but in the magnetic field of Christian freedom under the empowering, you may. Think about that. End of quote. When Jesus sets you free, then you are free to be all you can be, all that he created you to be. And then and only then you may become the you he made you to become. Until then, you are a spiritual bondage that has been sold as freedom. You know, for years, people living in the communist bloc countries had been told that they were free and the rest of us were in bondage. Well, many of them believed that lie for decades. Only now, when some know freedom, are these truly aware that they were, in fact, living in a slave state. But listen, the first indication that we've just discussed in your outline of discipleship is that we learn and live God's word. James, in James 1.22, stated, we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Then consider second in your outline, compassion. Our text, John 13, 34 and 35, states, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love one another with all of our differences is a miracle. I don't love you because you are so lovable. I don't Love you because I am so loving. We love one another because he first loved us, and it is his love in us that enables us to love one another. Tertullian, writing shortly after Christ's death, 
He remarked of the Christians, he said, Behold how they love one another. And we also don't love one another because we always have the same opinion on issues. We love one another because Christ has enabled us to do so. You know, some churches consisting of members who are not truly regenerated or who are not abiding in his word, they divide over issues. The love of Christ should enable us to disagree without being disagreeable. In John 6, 66 to 68, this is one of the saddest statements in Scripture. It follows an occasion when Christ explained the cost of discipleship, and it, and it is said, Many went out from him, and then with sadness out of a broken heart, he turned to the twelve and he asked, Will you also go away? Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So listen, abide in his word and love one another with all the differences that may exist. I've even heard of churches dividing over which side to put the piano on, the color of the carpets or or the color of the walls. You know, up in Tennessee, there was a Baptist church. Its setting is one of those rural areas. It practiced foot washing. And the original church split over an argument over which foot was to be washed first. And the group withdrew and named their new church so that everyone would understand which foot comes first. So now we have the Left Foot Baptist Church. Now, I'm I'm sure some were mistakenly sincere that the choice was scriptural. Others, tears in that body, elected to divide the body. Disagree, but don't divide. You know, we differ, but we have one distinctive We love one another, and by this all men will know we are his disciples. You know, I am fully persuaded he allows us to often have things in our lives over which we disagree simply as a test to demonstrate our solidarity in Christ to the onlooking outside world. The intimacy between the believer and Jesus Christ is an intimacy which is far from being individualistic, is shared within the warmth of love with other believers, a love that imitates Christ's love for us. And then consider third in your outline, creativity. John 15, 8 states that you bear much fruit. Galatians tells us of the fruit of the Spirit. But what is, this, what is the fruit of a Christian? It is anything that glorifies God. The intimacy between Jesus Christ and the believer is an intimacy paralleled in some respects by the intimacy between Jesus and his Father. It's alike in three ways. First, we are objects of the love of Jesus just as he was an object of the Father's love. He said in John 59, As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Can you imagine that? 
Jesus loves you with the same intensity of love that the Father loves him. And then later Jesus again said in John 17, 23, You sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And second, we abide in the love of Jesus just as he did in the Father's love. By obedience. Jesus insisted in John 15, 10, If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed the Father's commands and remain in his love. And third, our supreme joy results from our obedient relationship with Jesus just as his supreme joy results from his obedience to the Father. And Jesus said on John 15, 11, right after 15, 10, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and your joy may be full. You know, as a young boy, we had an apple tree in the area. I know it was an apple tree because it had apples on it. It identified as an apple tree by bearing apples. Are you producing enough for people to know you are a disciple of Christ? Does your lifestyle give you away? Can people observe you and know you are a follower of Christ? If not, will you begin today resolving to conform with these three characteristics of a disciple of Christ? First, will you let his word abide in you and you abide in it? Two, will you resolve to love others as Christ has loved you? And third, will you commit yourself to doing those things that glorify our Lord? At this time, I'm going to ask the praise team to come and give us a song, and, and then I will, I will give us a closing remarks. Amen.
this name of Jesus be the anthem of our lives may the power of his presence mark our hearts with holy fire may we imitate his holiness that all might see the light may your name be lifted high is that what you're taking to the community is that what the unsaved community sees when they see you in other words is your light shining for others to see. You know, in this world, we are surrounded by opposition. And constantly, we have to resist the evils of this world while at the same time trying to decide how we're going to respond. And when you're living a life dedicated to Jesus, it strikes me as we must be ready to face the negativity. And we face that responding in love of Christ. You know, when we live for Christ, we do so openly 
honestly, unashamedly, and beautifully. We are called to be light in the darkness. But listen, whenever you turn a light on in the dark world, it attracts the unsaved world, the tares, the apostates. And these are the bugs of opposition, the bugs of ridicule, persecution, and suffering. And these bugs swarm around true believers. But Jesus not only wants us to know that this is part of the Christian life, but he wants us to know how believers are to respond. And this morning he told us how to respond by being and becoming true disciples. Amen. Amen. Blessings to you all. I'll see you all next week. Amen.